think it's, I think it's going to be very neat, very helpful. How many know that God has established some boundary stones or some markers in our lives, in our spiritual lives, to help guide us as we walk through our faith and pursue Him? And uh, what I've noticed in the last, you know, I don't know, 20, 25 years, there's a lot of Christians out there trying to pursue God, trying to walk for Him, but they're kind of making it up as you go. And uh, how many know that God gave us the Bible so that we didn't have to wonder what is right or wrong? We didn't have to wonder what we should do. Let me give you a little thought as we open this series. I hear a lot of Christians uh, saying stuff like, well, I need to pray about that. Do you know that there's a lot of things in life that Christians shouldn't have to pray about? Come on now, we, I, think about this this week when you tell somebody you're going to pray for them or i got to pray about this. I mean, there's a lot of things in, God, in God's Word, you know, should we, should, we support, should we support the church? Should we attend church? Should we serve at church? Should we help others in need? We don't need to pray about that. We need to do it, right? And so we're going to lay out some markers, and very interesting, my text of this series comes from way, way back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 19, 14. If you didn't like that comment about you shouldn't have to pray for some things, just skip that and maybe I'll make you happy in just a minute as we keep going, okay? Deuteronomy 19, 14, it says this very interesting. It says, do not move your neighbor's boundary stone set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And so it's, it, in the ancient world, I know today we have we have surveys and plats and all kinds of things that tell you where your property is at. But in the ancient days, you know, way before computers and so on and so forth, they would put big boundary stones in, in place to mark boundaries. And, and uh, so what we see is in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is Moses giving instructions to the children of Israel. Basically, you're about to go and inherit the promised land, the land you know, we've been trying, I've been trying to get you to for 40 years, you're finally there. And Moses was recounting to them the law and actually telling them things that were going to be very important so that not only that they got into the promised land, but they lived well and prospered in the promised land. And he, he, he starts talking with great conviction about this idea of boundary stones. And basically, what he's saying is when you receive your inheritance, when the children of Israel went in the promised land, more than three million of them. Every individual family and every tribe received an allotment of land. The only tribe that didn't receive an allotment was the tribe of Levi because they got land with, they, those were the priests of the day. They were in charge of the worship, the Levites. And they got an allotment within the other allotments. But every other tribe and every other family, so every family when they got into the promised land, every one of them got a nice allotment of land. Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't that be good? Everyone just free land, you know, free land. And uh, so what he's saying is you need to make sure when, when, you, when you get your allotment of land, put boundary stones up, you need to make sure, it's very important, that as generations go by, as your land is passed down to your, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, as time goes by, make sure no one ever moves those boundary stones. And what would happen is, obviously, it doesn't matter if everyone, everyone has a piece of land. Some families do better than others. Some families become more prosperous than others. Some of the tribes became more powerful than others. And he said what would happen in the course of time is that the stronger families and the stronger tribes could move the boundary stones to decrease their neighbor's property, but to increase theirs. And, and this would happen if this happened. The, the strong get stronger and the weak get weaker. If somebody is much more stronger and powerful than you and they move the boundary stone, there's not much you can do about it. So this was to protect all of the, all of the tribes and the individual family members to, re, to protect uh, the allotment of land uh, that, they would, that they would get. And I found it very interesting as I was studying for the series that th this same phrase is used six more times. In the Old Testament, it's a reoccurring theme through the Old Testament. Let's look one more in Deuteronomy 27, verse 17. It says this, this, this comes even a little bit stronger. Cursed is anyone who moves their neighbor's boundary stone 
then all the people shall say amen. So this was such a vital principle that God said, listen, if you, if you, if you intentionally violate what I'm asking you to do, if you intentionally take advantage of the tribe next to you or the family next to you, if you grow your land, your allotment by, by moving the boundary stone and infringe on this person, if you do that intentionally, I'm not going to bless you. God says, I'm not going to bless you. There's going to be a curse upon you and your family. And I thought that was, I thought that was uh, you know, just very, very interesting. You know, as I, was, as I was preparing this week, I realized, you know, these boundary stones are talking about personal property rights. But I, I realized that, you know, actually God has put boundary stones, spiritual boundary stones, for the lives of his children. And the reason that he gives us boundary stones to mark the Christian life is, is not to keep us from having fun. It's not to keep us, uh, oh, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do this. But the simple fact that if we go down certain directions, if we take certain paths, it leads to destruction, it leads to pain, it leads to suffering. And, and so God says, I'm going to put these boundaries, these spiritual boundary stones in your life so that as you're pursuing me, as you're walking in your spiritual lives, you have boundaries Boundaries, so you know, you don't go outside the boundaries, you, 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 stay, you stay within them. It's very, very important. And what I've noticed, though, what I've noticed is that over the last probably 30 years, to be very specific, um, society, culture, and even the church, this is embarrassing, has moved the spiritual boundary stone. They've moved spiritual boundary stones that God put in place for personal convenience, for personal convenience. One time I was talking, I was on an airplane with this young couple, a, 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 a young man and a woman, and, and uh, so they were just going through life, and they were living together, and, 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 you know, we were just talking, and I wasn't trying to be spiritual or anything, and he was talking about how he was the captain of his own life, and, you know, there were no moral absolutes and all these kind of stuff, and so I just asked him, I mean, we're stuck beside each other for three hours. So it's like, hey, if what, if what you're saying is wrong, would you like me to help you out? I mean, and what he said to me was no. And I understand why, because if I could give him evidence that what he was, how he was living his life was not valid, that would mean that he was wrong. So I think sometimes we move spiritually. If there's something we don't like in the Bible, we just move that boundary stone. For our personal convenience so we don't feel guilty. But that's not, that's not how life is supposed to work. If, if, if Think about this. If we've given our lives to Jesus, if, if, if he is our salvation, and the Bible is God's word, then we, we have to stay within the boundary stones that God has given us. And furthermore than that, if the boundary stone's over here, we shouldn't even want to get up against it. We, we should want to stay on the inside lane, the clear lane, the... The, the lane of righteousness and peace and joy. And um, so here's the problem. Now let, let's, let's take this back to our lives. If, if we are guilty of moving boundary stones set up by God, if we just move them to where we want them to be, what it says is that there is actually a curse upon our life. And let me, you say curse, that's coming pretty strong. Let me, let me just, let me put it another way. It means that God can't bless our lives if we're not living within the boundaries that he's set for us. I mean, if he set boundaries for us and we want to go way out there and way over there and then come back in the middle whenever we want, if, 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 if we don't, if we don't, basically if we disobey the boundaries, boundary stones that God has placed for our lives, um, it, it causes us not to be blessed the way that God wants us to be blessed. And I want, I want you to say, I want to say something this morning is, um, God wants to bless everybody. He wants to, God is not looking to mess your life up, to ruin your life, but he's given principles that if we stand within those principles and obey those principles, there's tremendous blessings in our lives. If we disobey those, there's also negative consequences. Let me, let me give you a, a scenario here. So tomorrow morning, you wake up late for, late for work. And so you're blowing down the road, and you, you pass Mr. Police Officer uh, doing 60 and a 35. 
so Mr. Officer is all excited, and he turns on his lights, and he comes after you because you're a criminal, you know, and you're a lawbreaker, and he pulls you over, and he gives you a ticket. I mean, what do you, what do you say? What do you say, right? What, what, there's a boundary stone that says 35 miles an hour, right? He'll probably even give you a little leeway, but if you blow by doing 60, you're going to get a ticket. Let's do another scenario. So you got a new job, and the boundary stone for your work says you need to be there from 9 to 5. Now, if you come in every day at 11, you know, well, you know, 9 to 5 just doesn't work for me. But that was the boundary stone that you accepted for work there. So you're probably going to lose your job, right? Or unless if you're a heck of a worker from 11 to 5, you're going to lose your job. So let's talk about this. The police officer isn't bad. Your boss isn't bad. You tried to move boundary stones. The boundary stones were already there. When you, when, you know, the boundary, the, the, the law was there before probably you were born, uh, before you took the, the job at the company, the, the, they explained what the boundary stones were. And let me tell you this, before you gave your life to the Lord, the boundary stones of how we should live were already there. They're non-negotiable. No church has, no church has the power or the authority to change what's written in God's word. Uh, you know, it's, it just, it doesn't happen. No individual, no culture, no society. And uh, so anyway, there's boundary stones. So what I want to do in this, in this, I just think we've, the Christian uh, culture in America has gotten so off track that what I want to do is the next few weeks, I want to share some boundary stones that are in God's word that, that we have to obey. We have to obey the principles in God's word so that our lives can be blessed. God is looking for people to bless. God wants to bless you. He wants to bless your finances. He wants to bless your marriage. He wants to bless your home. He wants to bless you. That's what he wants to do. But if we have been disobeying guidelines and boundary stones that he's put into our lives, the problem is not with God. I hear people blaming God a lot. I hear people blaming society and culture a lot. Listen, God is above all, and nothing can stop him from blessing you. But if your life isn't blessed, then we need to check the boundary stones and make sure that we haven't moved them to wherever we want, we, and we need to make sure, identify what the boundary stones are and stay within those. And if we do that, uh, you know, God's blessings will be upon our life. So the first boundary stone, the biggest boundary stone of all, the boundary stone of God's Word. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. The boundary stone of God's Word the number one boundary stone that God has given us is his word, the Bible. And you, you could even say this, the reason that the Bible is so important is all of God's boundary stones that he's given to us are in the Bible. And, and so if, if you have never read the Bible or if, you don't, if you've gotten to a place where you don't believe the Bible is true, that's a major problem because if you don't accept the boundary stone of God's word, then that means you're not going to accept the things that are, that are in the Bible. So, so think about this with me this morning. The devil, the devil knows this. The devil knows that the number one, his number one enemy is if Christians actually believe the Bible and actually read what's in it and start following. He, he knows that. The devil's not too concerned about a complacent Christian. You know? I mean, if you come to church once every six weeks, don't do anything in between, read your Bible at Christmas and Easter. The devil's not too concerned about you changing the world. He's not. But if you become serious about that, he, that that's very, very worrisome. Are y'all okay this morning? Y'all being a little quiet, okay? Y'all okay? You're still there? This thing's on? All right, here we go. Um, so think about this. The devil knows this, so the devil, what he's trying to do, and, and I encourage you to watch this this week, what he's trying to do in culture is to undermine the authority of God's Word. If people don't believe the Bible is real and valuable in their lives, if the, there's, a lot, there's whole denominations of the church. I'm not going to tell you which one. I'll tell you privately if you want to know. One of my friends was a pastor in a denomination, and at their, at their big national meeting, they couldn't pass a referendum that the Bible was God's Word without any error. Come on now. And, and those, they're leading churches every Sunday. And so my friend left. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer a whatever they were, okay? So 
so the authority of God's word is, is, very, is very, very important. The Barna Research Group, the Barna Research Group, they're kind of like Gallup, and they conduct studies all the time, and they've been polling Christians and churches, and they found that only 19% of people who attend church every week and claim to be Christian, only 19% of those people have a biblical worldview. And for teenagers, it's 12%. That, that's why I tell people, listen, if you come to church, you ought to have your teenager and youth group. Every, every Sunday, every Wednesday, they're out there teaching the Bible and teaching relevance. Uh, it's very, very important. And so a biblical worldview means this. It means that you view your life through the lens of the Bible. When you have a situation come up in your life, the first thing you do is you don't give your opinion you go to the Bible and see what the, how the Bible would have you to interact with that situation or problem. That would change a lot of our problems, church. So a biblical worldview that we view life through the lens of the Bible, and every time something happens in my life, I'm going to go to the Bible to see how I should react and what decision that I, that I should make. And so l let me, I'm going to go a step further. I, they found that 19% of people in church had a biblical worldview. And this is how they defined a biblical worldview. It says, for the purpose of this survey, a biblical worldview was defined as believing that absolute moral truth exists, that the Bible is totally accurate in all of its principles it teaches, that Satan is considered to be a real being or a force, not, not merely symbolic. A person cannot earn their way to heaven by trying to do good, to be good and do good works that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth, and God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. In, re in their research, anyone who held to these simple beliefs were said to have had a biblical worldview. So I was thinking about this. I believe that the reason the percentage is so low in church, I believe the reason that only, it's only 19% is two reasons. One, I believe that most Christians have never read the Bible. Only 2% of Christians claim to have read the whole Bible. So if you don't know, even know what the Bible says, you, 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 first, you can't defend it. And secondly, secondly you, you certainly can't have a strong faith. The second reason is because I believe that Christians are scared. So we go to public places and you turn on the news and people are saying things about Christianity and about the Bible. You hear one of your friends say, well, the Bible's not true. It contradicts itself. Well, if you've never read the Bible, if you've never studied the Bible, how can you defend that? You can't defend what you've never read. Let me, let me give you a good illustration. So way a whole long time ago, I was at Texas State University. Way a long time ago, you know, back when Abraham was walking, you know, the earth. So I was at Texas State University, and I, my, I, I uh, was a biology major. So I was in a sophomore biology class, and the biology class had 250 students in it. It was The classroom was almost this size, a little smaller than this. had 250 people in it. And one day my professor got up there and just started mocking the Bible. I mean, he just started saying, only a fool would believe in the accuracy of the Bible. Only a fool. And he just went on and on, and, and, and everyone in the class was just laughing and going along with it. So a few weeks a few weeks later, I had to go talk to him about something in the class. And, uh, you know, sometimes I just can't let something go. You know, it's just the way God made me. Love it or like it, let, you know, love it or leave it, whatever. But So after we talked about this, I said, hey, professor, can I respectfully ask you a question? We need to be respectful at all times. Can I respectfully ask you a question? He's like, sure. I was like, hey, you know, last week you were making fun of the Bible, mocking the Bible. So, so listen, I'm a Christian. And, and I believe in the accuracy of the Bible. So if you will tell me what your problem is, I will, I, will, I will come back with an answer for you. And you know what that professor did? He put his head down. And basically, he admitted to me that he had never read the Bible. He was just making humor. And so a lot of times when people say stuff about the Christian faith and about the Bible... They, they, they don't even, they're just saying that. That's a learned thing to say. And most of them have never even looked into it. And so what happened is we had about nine weeks left in that semester. He never again said one more thing when I was in his class. 
But I had a friend that took him the next semester, and he started up with the same thing. Why, why did he do that? He felt like he could do that because no one would challenge him. And I just respectfully uh, went, with, went to him to talk about that. So let's, let's look at this today. What I want to do today is I want to give you confidence in factual evidence that the Bible is true. So we're going we're to go down this line, and before we leave here today, you'll have, you'll have five reasons. Before we finish, you'll have five reasons to have confidence that the Bible is true. But let's start with what the Bible says. The Bible claims inerrancy. And so inerrancy just simply means that the Bible is without error or fault in all of its teachings, that the Scripture in its original manuscripts uh, does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. That's what inerrancy means, that when the Bible says it's, it's the inerrant Word of God, it just means that it's total truth, that you, you, can, you can't find anything in nature or, or to, be, to be factually uh, incorrect. So this is what the Bible, the Bible claims inerrancy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. It says this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In Revelation 22, 18, 18 through 19, uh, please realize that I could read scripture for about 20 minutes this morning on the inerrancy of the Bible, the claims from the Bible that it's inerrant, but I'm just going to read about three or four or five this morning. Revelation 22, 18, 19, it says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, in other words, the book of Revelation, and if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to them the plagues described in this scroll. Now, have you ever read the book of Revelation? There are some tremendous things in there that I would not want added to my life, okay? Um, the second, it says that God will... God will add that person the plagues described in that scroll. And, anyone, and if anyone takes away, takes words away from the scroll of the prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in the scroll. Now that, that's, that's, that's a much deeper statement that some of you may realize. We know that the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. It is what Adam and Eve ate from every day that caused them to live uh, indefinitely. And the Bible says that the tree of life will also be in heaven. And, and we know that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth because the old are going to pass away. And, and so basically what God's saying is if someone takes away the words, any words from my word, from my Bible, then they will have no share in the tree of life in heaven and they will never see the new city, the new heaven. That's, that's pretty deep. It's saying if, if we just decide we're going to take words from the Bible that you have no share in God. I mean, that's very, very, that's very, very deep. So think about that. Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So clearly the Bible claims to be the word of God without any error. Uh, and, and let, me, let me say something this morning. The Bible is either fully true or it's not. If anything in the Bible is incorrect, then that means the Bible is, is not valid. And that, that's just the way it is. So, it can't, so what I want to say is a lot of Christians like part of the Bible, they don't like the other part. And what I want to say, it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. If the Bible, if it's not 100% factual, if it's not 100% true, then all of us in here, we have no reason to be here because we're still stuck in our sins. I mean, the good news is it's, it's, it's valid, right? It's, it's accurate. So don't, I mean, don't take a deal. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do now? But Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15. He said this, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So why, why do you think the devil wants to cut at the authority of God's word because if he can do that if the Bible isn't true then neither then our faith isn't real and everything that we put our lives on is, is not valid Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 it says this for the word of God is alive and active it's sharper than a double-edged sword it penetrates even to dividing soul and joint soul and spirit joints and marrow it judges the thoughts and the attitude of our hearts 
This is a very important scripture because what this says is that the Word of God is alive and active. And uh, what that means for us today is that the Bible is still relevant in the 21st century. Um, it, it's very, very interesting. People are always asking, I guess because I'm a pastor, people are always asking my opinions. I have people set up appointments with me and they always want my opinions. I, even if I'm out, at, I, I go to the gym and I'm not even wanting to talk about anything, having to do with anything, wanting to deal with myself. And people at the gym come and ask, hey, what do you think about this? And you know, it used to puzzle me because I used to think, well, why do they want my opinion? What, what makes me such a person that my opinion is great? And what I want to say is in church, we have too many opinions. We have too many people saying, well, this is what I believe, instead of saying this is what God's Word says. We have to go back to, the, to God's Word, everything. And so now when people ask me certain things, I say, well, this my opinion is going to be based off the Bible, and this is what the Bible would say. It, is, is, it was interesting. You know, in the whole, a while back, and I'm not going to talk about this, I know this is supercharged, but during the whole uh, Justice Kavanaugh scenario, when people, I, I, I had 50 questions about that. 50 questions about that. So I started giving people five scriptures to read. Read these scriptures, then tell me how you look at this. The, even that, the Bible can speak to anything in our lives if you just look. If you just look. But we haven't, we haven't, we haven't been looking. And, um, but when it's living and active means that it, it's not an archaic book that doesn't apply to your life anymore. That it's still valid in your life today. That the principles in it can still produce life and hope in you today. See, that, that, that's good news for us today. And... Um, it's a valuable resource for any and every situation we face. Now, if you watch the news and if you watch the media and if you go on college campuses and in so many different places, what many people, how they portray the Bible is that they claim the Bible is a fictional storybook that offers no evidence for the support in its claims to inerrancy. And uh, that, that it's not true, it's just a fictional book. And what I want to say is this is absolutely false. Um, there, there is, I'm going to read this to make sure I get it right, there is overwhelming factual, scientific, and verifiable evidence to support the claims of the Bible. It's, it's overwhelming. There is a mountain of evidence today. So what I want to say is this. A lot of the, how, how we scientifically develop facts that lead to uh, truths of how we live life and, and how we can tell something's true or false, what I want to say to you today is, that by scientific standards, the Bible has a mountain of evidence to support itself. But, but we, we don't know this. We're scared. Like, we're scared to say we believe the Bible. We're scared to say. So what I want to do is I'm going I'm to give you five reasons today. Five, and they're going to be layered. And, and we'll start with, with kind of just common sense stuff, practical, and we'll go down to scientific. But wh what is the factual evidence to validate the Word of God, to validate the Bible. Because here's what I want to say. If the Bible is true, if there's factual evidence, scientific evidence that proves the Bible is what it says it is, if that's true, then that means it is the God-breathed, inspired Word of God, and we can take it to the bank, we can live our lives on that, because, because it's not something that's made up, it's something that came from the breath of God. So let's talk, first of all, about how the Bible was written. The Bible is very unique in how it was written. When you write a book today, one or two people come together and they corroborate and they get some facts and different things. They read people and they write a book. Usually a book just takes, you know, six months to a couple years to, to, um, to write. As a matter of fact, um, I, I just finished a book and it's going to be, uh, it's a book on parenting. It's going to be out about probably April or May of next year. So I'm excited about that. But the Bible is different. The Bible was written over 1,400 years. The Bible was written over... I, I want to say this this morning that I couldn't fit all of my notes on your notes or on the screen. And if you want me to email my sermon notes, everything that I I'm talking about today, to you, write your email, write it where it's legible, and put it in the offering box, and I'll be happy to email this to you tomorrow morning. Uh, no problem. But see, the, the Old Testament was written... It started in 1300 B.C., and it was completed at 425 B.C. So 
The Old Testament was written literally over about 900 years. Uh, the New Testament, of course, was completed by 100 A.D., and so the 66 books of the Bible were written over a 1,400-year period, and it's generally held that there were about 30 to 40 authors. Uh, there are several books of the Bible we're not exactly sure who wrote them. So, the, of course, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament was written in Greek, and they were written on sheep, sheepskin, vellum, and papyrus plants. Later, later some of the scrolls uh, were copied on leather. Uh, it was preserved in scroll form and used sparingly, and it was guarded by scribes. When you, when you hear about scribes in the Bible, a scribe is a modern-day lawyer. That's, that's what a scribe is. Um, so, and then, the, of course, the Bible claims that it was divinely inspired, which means that holy men of God wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. These writers were men of ability and a holy life, and that they were inbreathed or inspired by God to write. Now, let me give you some proof of inspiration. This is something that people just don't think about, okay? But um, the most remarkable, the Bible is the most remarkable literary accomplishment in the history of the world. It's really incredible. Let me tell you why. Uh, these 66 books written over a 1,400-year period by 30 to 40 men in different stations of life, uh, different locations, different time periods, in different occupations. So the majority of people who wrote the Bible, they never met each other. There was no, there were no email, there was no texting, there was no Instagram. You know, there was none of that. Most of these 1,400-year people, most of them never met each other, never knew each other. The, the one that wrote 700 years later did not even know yet what the person 600 years ago had written. It's an amazing thing. And of course, yet you come with, this, with the Bible, 66 books, written by 30 to 40 people over a 1,400-year period, and there's no contradictions. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's miraculous. That's, that's supernatural. So let me ask you a question. What if I took 30 to 40 authors today and had them, had them write something uh, without talking to each other? Now, we're going to let them live all in the same time period, okay? They never talked. They never, they never communicate. They live miles apart. Some of them are fishermen, doctors, shepherds, and kings. And uh, they're not allowed to communicate. And I ask them to write on religion, poetry, ethics, science, morality, philosophy, the meaning of life, and to predict the future. What do you think would be the result? It would be chaos. I mean, it, it, is, it is incredibly supernatural that people could write a book over over 1,400 years, and some of them are fishermen who have never had an education. Some of them are medical doctors. I mean, some of them are shepherds. I mean, many of these people, and that you, the end result is something that flows together. When you read the Bible, it's, it flows. It's a historical, it's a historical document. So that's the first, that's the first thing, is just how it was written. There's no way that it could have been written the way that it was over the years with many people and, and, and not have just all kind of errors and contradictions upon itself. The second thing we understand is that there was a canonization process. Now, when you write a book today, you can write anything you want and find someone to publish it. If no one will publish it, you can self-publish it. It doesn't have to be true. There's no, there's no measure, standard of measurement to use, you just write a book. Um, there's something in the Bible called the canonization process, and the word canon means measuring rod. And so what would happen as these books of the Bible, as they decided, as the early church fathers said, we need to put these, the, these books into one book and inform the Bible, what they would do is the church fathers would get together, and they, they, had, they had a measuring rod, a standard, and if a book of the Bible, if a book that was considered to be going in the Bible, if there was error in it, if there's something wasn't right about it, if it didn't, if it didn't meet the quality that, that the spiritual quality they wanted, it was not put in there. So there was a there was a strict way that these things were, were put together to uh, to show there were distinctive marks of divine authority, authorship, and authenticity. So the New Testament canon was completed with the book of Malachi and closed around 425 B.C. Uh, so in 425 B.C., the Old Testament 
portion of our Bible was completed. It was verified through the canonization process, and it's still exactly the Bible, the Old Testament we have today. 39, 39 books in the Bible. So if you go to your Bible, the Protestant Bible, the 39 books in there, they, they were canonized in 425 B.C. And this is the Bible that, that, that Christ accepted, the early church accepted, and uh, even, even the Jewish Bible. The only difference between the, Old, the Jewish Old Testament and ours is that the Jewish, um, they combined several books that we put separate. Like they, they combine first and second kings and they place chronicles after Malachi. Now, for all of you, many of you may have been raised in the Catholic Church, and he's like, Well, you know, gosh, well, the Catholic Bible has about seven more books in the Old Testament, and these are known as the apocryphal books. And we have, uh, you know, they are the first and second Maccabees, Barak, Tobit, Judith, the wisdom of Solomon, and Ecclesiasticus. And so what happened, the reason that they're not in the Protestant Bible is because those books didn't, didn't make it through the canonization process. There were things in them that the spiritual fathers did not think were adequate, but they are in uh, the, the, the Catholic Bible. So that's, that's the Old Testament. Now let's talk about the, the accuracy of the Old Testament manuscripts. Um, so here's the thing we have to understand. Today, today in our world, there are thousands thousands of Old Testament documents and New Testament documents that, that, that um, scholars have gone through to verify their authenticity. And what I want to say is all of them have verified they are incredibly accurate uh, to what our Bible is today. So when, when people say, well, you don't know if what, your Bible, if what your Bible says is actually what was written hundreds of years ago, we do. There's thousands of documents that show exactly uh, what our Bible should say. And so what would happen is, uh, in the Old Testament especially, um, the scribes, because they were, it was written on papyrus plants and, and vellum and stuff, and after years and years they would wear out. So before they would wear out, the scribes would, would copy the same exact uh, document onto a new document, and every word was counted, every letter was counted, every line was counted, and if there was... If there was anything that was inaccurate, uh, if there, like the new page they did, if it had uh, three, you know, let's say 275 words, but the original had 277 words, this one was thrown out and it was redone again. And so that's how, that's how it was handed down uh, from generation to generation. And uh, something that's very, very incredible, until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, um, the oldest existing manuscripts of the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, were dated all the way, were dated to uh, A.D. 900. So, A.D. 900, so 900 A.D., but the original Old Testament was completed in 425 B.C. That's a 1,300-year period. And so we had nothing between that 1,300-year period. But when uh, uh, one day in 1947, some Baudouin boys had skipped school, you know it had to be boys, right? Girls actually go to school, right? They skipped school, and they, they were out hunting, playing in these caves, the caves of Qumran out there by the Dead Sea. And they went in there, and they found these manuscripts. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they, they ended up, um, they found 15,000 fragments in 500 different texts in one cave, in cave number four. Um, those of you that went with us to Israel, we drove right, right by there. And so now they have found biblical scrolls in 12 caves in their own leather. And they, they date all the way back to 200 B.C. So, it, so if you if you know, we have documents, we have documents that go within 200 years of when the Bible was canonized. It, it, that's incredibly. Uh, and of course... When they found these, it took them years to decipher and things like that, and, and all the atheists and things were so, they were so excited because they just knew that these older documents would not correlate with the Bible. And again, it was incredibly precise and accurate into the main thing. Let's talk about the New Testament for a minute. Am I boring you this morning? I know this is a lot of detail, but this is very, very important. Um, and if you want my notes, you can get them and you can just read them to somebody. They want to argue with you, so I'm going to just read it to them, man. Um, the New Testament canon, of course, during the first century, the books comprising our New Testament were written, copied, and circulated. And um, 
and by the 4th century. So there were two councils of the early church fathers, the Council of Hippo in AD 393 and the, the Council of Carthage in AD 397. And at this time, the, the, the church at large accepted all 27 books forming our New Testament. And uh, the accuracy of the New Testament manuscripts is, is unparalleled. The overall manuscript evidence supporting uh, the New Testament's accuracy, there are, there are 5,400 Greek, new, new, Greek manuscripts in the New Testament, uh, over 10,000 of the Latin Vulgate. The, the Vulgate is just the Latin form of the Bible. And at least 9,300 earlier versions, a total of 24,000 manuscript copies or portions of the New Testament are in existence today. So to put this in perspective, the Bible has more manuscript evidence supporting its reliability and accuracy of translation than any ten pieces of ancient literature combined. I mean, I mean, it's, 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 the, the, the mountain of evidence is staggering. So, so far, we've talked about the proof of it, the inspiration, no contradictions, the canonization process, the accuracy of the Old and New Testament manuscripts, along with the volume of manuscripts still available today. I mean, I mean, think about think about some of the some of the um, some of the uh, what we call some of the historical works that we take it that that people take as face value today, and we don't we don't even know how they started out, and and so the the mountain of evidence. So, but l let's get a little bit more practical today, scientific. So uh, the, next, the next layer after you get these three is archaeology. And I want to encourage you, we could, we could, we could have a, an eight-week course on biblical archaeology because so many things have been discovered. Uh, there's books written on biblical archaeology. Uh, Dr. Scott Stripling, who lives here in Sugar Land and usually speaks here once or twice a year, he's actually digging in Shiloh right now, which is which it was the, where the first temple was built, uh, was put in Israel when they, when they came across uh, the Jordan there. And um, so archaeology is the science where it goes and digs up history to make sure that the time frame and what history books have told us actually happened. And so what biblical archaeology is a fairly new field, and basically biblical archaeologists, they read, they read the Bible, and and, and see and see, uh, and then they go to the time frame the Bible says it would have been in, and they go to that to the site, and they dig down layers till the, till they get to that the year, the time period, and they see if what the Bible said was true, and it's it's really incredible. They have found the Bible said there's a city here. They've gone and dug up cities. They they've dug up the walls of Jericho. Um, you know, Israel, this is really interesting, even in, in Israel, of course, many people in Israel are not saved, and for years and years they were saying that there was no King David. There was no King David. King David was, was a myth. Well, until about 20 years ago, when they, there was a place called Tel Dan where they, they were excavating there, and they found all these monuments to the house and line of David. And they, there's, been, there's been more things. Do you remember... Do you remember in uh, the King Hezekiah, they were, they were seized. There was a seize on the city, and it, it said that, that Hezekiah had built waterways underground from the springs of Gihon uh, going into the city. Um, and archaeology found that. As a matter of fact, when we went to Israel, you can, you can go to Israel today and walk in the tunnels of Hezekiah. And in the tunnels of Hezekiah today, I mean, you have to bend down because they're about this high. You have to bend down to walk. And the water is still this deep, flowing from the natural spring all the way into the city. They had a, an aqueduct and all kind of things. So, so, so many things, so many things have been done. So, th this is verifiable scientific data that can't be argued with. The Bible said that this happened at this time frame, this location. They go there and dig it up, and that's exactly what they find. So, again, another Another point of evidence. Uh, the last one I want to talk about today is, is biblical prophecy. You know, again, the Bible was written by these people in the Old Testament. There were many, many hundreds of, of prophetic predictions about what would happen. And we find in just the life of Jesus Christ, more than 300 
prophecies are fulfilled. And what I want you to know today is that uh, people cannot argue that there wasn't a rabbi named Jesus. When you go to Israel, there is verifiable data that Jesus spoke here, that Jesus spoke here. So they're, they're, and we know, they know that where he was raised in Nazareth, they know where he was born in Bethlehem. All that, all that is verified. The question is, did he raise from the dead? That's, that, that's, that's the question. So when people say, oh, there wasn't a Jesus made up, no, no, no. There, without question, there was Jesus. And so 300 prophecies in his life. And again, there, you, you, can, you can read this. There's books that have this stuff in it. Um, there's hundreds of prophecies that have been fulfilled. One that I found very interesting I want to read to you today. Isaiah 14, 23, it says this. It says, I will turn her, her, the her is Babylon, I will turn her into a place for owls and into swampland. I will, I will sweep her with, with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord God, God Almighty. And so the prophet Isaiah makes a bold claim that Babylon, which had been a world power on two separate occasions, at two different times in history, would be brought to a humble final end. But not only that, Isaiah claims that Babylon would be reduced to a swampland. It will be, be a swampland. And uh, we know that Cyrus conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. And the, the kingdom never again rose to power. And history tells us that Babylon fell into a state of gradual ruin during the, sec the next several centuries. Interesting enough, uh, archaeologists in the 1800s went to excavate Babylon. And they, so they started excavating buildings, and then they came back and told, and told the people that were, you know, hiring them to do this, said, we can't excavate part of Babylon because their, their, their buildings are underwater. It was a swampland. The water table had risen over the centuries, and, and they, it was just, you were digging in water, you couldn't, you couldn't excavate uh, the city. Anyway, I thought that was very interesting. So, this morning, you know, my goal was just to show you that there is verifiable evidence. There's, there's evidence that you can trust the Bible, that it's true, it's scientifically provable, it's not an irrational book written by a bunch of irrational people that doesn't make sense, that doesn't flow together, and also that doesn't fit into history. History has been the greatest prover of the Bible. We've talked about a lot of these things. So my question for you this morning is real simple. If, if, if the Word of God is true, and I believe there's credible evidence that it is, if that is true, then my question is, are you living within the boundaries that it sets for, our, for your life? You see, we can't take part of the Bible that we like and live by it and part we don't and throw it out. So my question is, I, I've tried to, to prove convincingly this morning that the, that the Bible is factual, that it is real, and the question is, as Christians, are we living by it or are we making up things as we go? It, 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 it's very simple because the claims is, if, if, man, if, if, if we, if we, um, if we're, I'm trying to think of the word, if we're, if we're, uh, you know, if we're, if we're joyful about, about God's word to us, that man, God gave us a blueprint for life and, and, these boundaries, they will bless my life if I stay within them. If, if we do that, God will be able to bless us. If we're going to try to make up our own boundary stones, then God's blessings uh, cannot, cannot be upon our life. And so uh, my, my question to you today is, see, I, I, I believe that the church has gotten way off course. There's many churches that have church out on their billboard, and they don't even believe that parts of the Bible are real. And therefore, God can't, God can't bless them. Uh, therefore, from what we read earlier, they're going uh, to be in, 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 obviously, danger of, of some serious consequences. But, you know, the thing is, church, I'm not worried about everyone else. I'm worried about us. I want you to be blessed. I want my kids to be blessed. I want our families to be blessed. And, and the starting point of this series is the building stone of the Word of God. Because that has to be good in our hearts before we can actually obey uh, what, it, what, it, what is uh, written in it before. So, my, and my next question is this, is maybe you're here this morning and maybe your life has gotten off track, but 
you, you didn't do it on purpose. You've just never read the Bible. You've never read the Bible. I want you to come back next week because next week I'm, I'm going to teach you how to read the Bible. I'm going to talk the whole, whole time next weekend is how do you read the Bible? How do you develop a plan? How do you, how do you get this into your life? Because I believe, you know, once you, first of all, believe that, yes, oh, okay, but the Word of God is accurate, I can trust it. The next thing is, how can I start reading it? How can I start reading it? And uh, would you stand with me this morning? So the first boundary stone is simply the boundary stone of God's Word. And would you, would you take a moment as the worship team just plays, would you take a moment and would you just look in the mirror yourself real quick and, and ask yourself, man, have I, have I been living by God's Word? Have I, have I used that as a boundary stone for my life? God, we come before you, and Lord, we just, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us an absolute roadmap of how to live life, that really your word makes life very simple. It's black and white. And Lord, we thank you for that. And God, right now, Lord, we, we repent for where we've moved your boundary to make our lives easy. If you're here this morning and you say, Terry, I know that I've disobeyed the Bible. I know that I've lived outside of that. And I just want to ask God to forgive me. And I want to make the Bible the boundary stone of my life. Would you just raise your hands this morning? I'm sure there's hands going up everywhere. God, just forgive us today. God, just forgive us for not obeying your word. Forgive us for not making your word the boundary stone, the marker for our life, God. Lord, we ask you.